my god, they're dead! Who could have done such a heinous act? I bet it was that frog down by the swamp. I don't like that frog. He's got them shifty eyes. It was that convict iron jaw, that rapscallion. I bet it was that strange shadowy figure that likes to swing in the park on Thursday nights. I swear to you, it was my stuffed panda. He's, he's possessed. It could have been Ricky's arm. We haven't seen it since it got cut off. I definitely know who the killer is. That that way. Way. Blank is the killer. Hello and welcome to Blank is the Killer, the unoriginal horror movie podcast where I, your locked-in host Josh Baker, cover six new-to-me horror movies with a random spooky topic seven at the end. This episode contains friend killers, serial killers, and self-killers. There are a bunch of newer movies on this episode, so I'm going to give you a big blanket spoiler warning here. If you don't want the house that Jack built, the clove hitch killer, bird box, or bandersnatch to be spoiled, dip out when you hear me start those sections. Now follow me to the panic room. We need somewhere safe and quiet to begin. Number 1, Starry Eyes, 2014, directed by Kevin Kolsch and Dennis Widmeyer. An aspiring actor named Sarah ends up being reborn as a demon after auditioning for Atreus Pictures, going down on a big producer, and murdering her friends. Sarah is the killer. Starry Eyes was recommended to me by an old roommate around the time it was originally released. It took me about four years to get around to actually watching it. Do I regret waiting so long to see it? Nope. Starry Eyes is a bit of a mess. It does have some good stuff in it. As far as basic plot goes, I like the concept. Girl wants to become famous. Girl does something with a weird cult. Girl is reborn as a demon thing. Man, is the beach scene super uncomfortable and longer than needed. I don't really need to hear Sarah give old producer man a beach. The movie could have just implied it. Speaking of the old producer, holy hell can that guy not act to save his life. Whose grandfather agreed to be in the film? If you're supposed to have an intimidating big wig in a cult, make sure that person playing that character doesn't pretend like they are in some community theater stage play. Alex Esso plays Sarah, and for the most part, she's pretty great. In some scenes, her delivery is awful. She shows that she can be great, so I'm not sure if the bad scenes were rushed and multiple takes couldn't be done or what, given that the entire thing was shot in 18 days. Pat Healy plays the restaurant owner, and I liked his performance. Fabian Therese plays the jerk character in the friend group. She was in Sequence Break and Southbound. Her performance isn't all that amazing. Noah Segan, who has also been in another movie covered on the podcast, is in this. He was in Mohawk, a movie I completely forgot about. His performance is subpar to terrible. He's terrible at acting like he's dying from being stabbed. Unless this is supposed to be a comedy in parts, the movie is all over the place. At times, it's funny like when Sarah won't hand over a basket of food to her boss, which results in them playing tug-of-war with the basket until food flies everywhere. At times, it's a body horror movie where we see Sarah become sickly, 
lose her hair, fingernails, and randomly start bleeding. The body horse sections are done pretty well. The makeup for Sarah's crusty lips and sunken eyes is incredibly well done. In some parts of the movie, like when she's arguing with her roommate, at other times, like when she confronts the girl who's always mean to her, it doesn't look nearly as good. To continue talking about the makeup, there's a part in the movie where a hairless Sarah digs herself out of a grave, which is how she's reborn. It's obvious that she's wearing a bald cap in this scene due to it getting messed up on the back of her head as she comes out of the dirt. Luckily, that's the only part where the bald cap is completely obvious. Alex Esso did not shave her head for starry eyes. The gore is well done. There is a cheek slash in this movie that's awesome. I was sure it was going to be a throat slash, but I'm super glad that my expectations were subverted. We got multiple brutal stabbings and a face is bashed in with a dumbbell. All of this looks really good. There's a part in the movie where Sarah throws up a bunch of maggots. Alex says she put them in her mouth for real. This should completely gross me out as the viewer and almost does, but someone decided to accompany the gross out imagery with the most comical worms wriggling sound effect I've ever heard. Why? Why did they kill the entire scene with this terrible, ill-fitting sound effect? If you're going to include it, at least make it more subtle. Sarah throws up the maggots, then boom, blaring, wriggling sound effect whenever a maggot is shown even if only a singular maggot is on screen. Maybe maggots would actually sound like that. I went on YouTube to do some research, got instantly grossed out, and bailed out of those search results. Do not search for maggots on YouTube. Ugh. Besides the awful wriggling sound effect, I was not a fan of Starry Eyes' score. It rarely fits what was happening on screen. It turns out the directors were originally going to go with a traditional orchestral score, which definitely would have worked better. I am a fan of synth music, but the synth score was not good in this. If Starry Eyes was a little more concise and better acted by prominent characters, I think it would be an easy movie to recommend. Unfortunately, as a whole, Starry Eyes did not work for me. I'd say skip this one and instead watch a movie called Dreamhouse from 2010. It's more of a straight up slasher, but I remember it having a ton of great kills. It's about a woman who starts murdering people because the sellers of her dream home turned down her offer. Number 2 The House That Jack Built 2018 directed by Lars von Trier. A serial killer named Jack goes over various murders he's committed while walking to hell with Virgil. Jack talks about his first murderer, attempts to build a house, his OCD cleaning tendencies early on, and how he began to get reckless. Before making his trip to hell, Virgil recommends that Jack finishes building a house, so Jack makes a house out of a bunch of corpses he has in his walk-in freezer. Jack then ends up in hell. Jack is the killer. To add some perspective to this section, The House That Jack Built is the second Lars von Trier film I have seen. The first one was Antichrist. If you haven't seen Antichrist, it includes graphic genital violence and mutilation. Antichrist is easily one of the most disturbing movies I've ever seen. So how disturbing is The House That Jack Built? Well, the closest it gets to genital mutilation, barring some quick shots from Antichrist and some of Trier's other movies at the end, is breast removal which ends up, oddly enough, 
being funny? Stay with me. The house that Jack built is a black comedy. Yes, it has a lot of dark and disturbing content, but almost everything is displayed with an oddly comedic flavor. Take the breast removal, for example. The act of removal is not shown, at least in the R-rated cut of the film that I watched. How do we know the breasts were removed? Well, after Jack marks where he is going to cut them with a magic marker and decides on which knife to use, we cut to him putting a severed breast under a cop car windshield wiper. It's absolutely absurd. The other breast? He turns it into a wallet. The concept of breast removal should be absolutely horrifying. Since I've seen Antichrist, I was sure that the act itself was going to be front and center, which I did not want to see. Luckily, the house that Jack built, at least the R-rated cut, knows exactly how far to go when it comes to showing the violence in gore on screen and avoids sexual violence unless you count the breast removal, which didn't give off much of a sexual vibe if any, in my opinion. Another gory yet hilarious scene involves Jack quickly driving away from a murder scene in his van that's dragging the corpse of the victim behind it. This causes there to be a trail of blood from the murder scene to Jack's corpse freezer. Having Jack realize this and seeing his victim's face has been ground off by the trip is hilarious. On paper, it's horrifying. That should be the movie's tagline. The house that Jack built. Horrifying on paper, hilarious on screen. The camera work really heightens the comedy. It's mostly handheld and has zooms, which kind of gives the cinematography a similar vibe to the TV show, The Office. It's a weird comparison for sure, but that's what a lot of the camera work reminded me of. The violence isn't all done in a comedic manner, but as a whole, The House That Jack Built is definitely a black comedy. There are even some obvious done-for-comedy sequences, like the part where Jack takes two corpses back to the scene of one of the original murders in Fast Forward. Pet warning, I think I said that I would only do these for actual pets, but young Jack snips off a baby duckling's foot, which is possibly the most disturbing thing in the film. It would either be that or when Jack taxidermies one of the two boys he kills in front of their mother, into a pose where the boy, whom Jack refers to as Mr. Grumpy, is waving with a creepy, manipulated smile. Yeah. The family sniping sequence is probably the darkest part of the entire movie, and probably the only kill recount where attempted humor doesn't really work due to the circumstances. The mom and kids were told to wear red hats, so some people are saying this sequence is political, which I can see. Trier has been very vocal about his disdain for a certain politician. One other disturbing thing to throw out as a warning, there is a segment where you see some real footage of dead bodies that appear to be mostly from World War II footage, which is definitely hard to watch. Uma Thurman plays the first victim in the film, and I've seen a lot of people calling out her performance as being unbelievable. Her character basically begs Jack to murder her. I see this movie as a retelling from Jack's point of view, which explains why a lot of his victims don't act like normal humans, the cops are even more useless than usual, and why Jack mostly gets away from all situations with a great amount of luck and ease. Jack is a complete narcissist, so of course he's going to embellish and manipulate the events of his exploits. Throughout the movie, Jack talks about how his kills are art, 
and consensus seems to be that Jack is a vessel used by Lars von Trier to talk about himself and his films. There's no denying that a lot of Trier's films are controversial. Most believe that Jack's conversation with Virgil regarding art is Lars von Trier being overly self-indulgent. I can definitely see that being the case, but even without the comparison, I think the discussion between the two characters really rounds out Jack as a character. Jack is a narcissist that believes everything he's done is correct. Matt Dillon is amazing as Jack. I'd say the acting is great across the board if you look at Uma Thurman's performance as a twisted retelling from Jack. The gore in this movie is practical and disturbingly perfect. Luckily, I personally don't feel the gore ever goes too far like in Antichrist. I've seen the house that Jack built being compared to Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. The only similarity these movies have is their focus on a serial killer. The tones and ways the murders are presented are completely different. I felt dirty after watching Henry. Henry is a disturbing, gritty look into the life of a serial killer. In comparison, Jack is much more lighthearted and is much more comedic and entertaining compared to Henry's depressing, horrifying approach. The House That Jack Built is an entertaining movie. I heavily enjoyed my viewing. Do I recommend it? Uh, well, to some people. This is definitely a polarizing film. If you have a very dark sense of humor, are okay with seeing graphic violence, and can put up with a pretentious director, check out The House That Jack Built. Number 3. New Year, New You. 2018, directed by Sophia Takal. Four friends, Lexi, Kayla, Chloe, and Danielle, meet at a house to hang out on New Year's Eve. Danielle has become Instagram famous and is about to get a TV show. Danielle hasn't hung out with her other friends in quite some time. Led by Lexi, the other girls tie up Danielle. Lexi demands that Danielle admits to being a terrible person who drove a girl to suicide. Danielle doesn't. Danielle talks Chloe into helping her. Chloe ends up killing Kayla on accident. Kayla's girlfriend comes to the house. Chloe murders her too. Lexi knocks Chloe down the stairs with a golf club, which kills her. Lexi then throws Danielle through a window in what can barely be considered self-defense since she had the upper hand way before the window was broken. Danielle dies and Lexi takes her place on Instagram and whatnot. Chloe is the killer. Huh. Chloe's the only killer? I mean... Danielle basically talks her into murdering people and talked a girl into killing herself, but Danielle never physically killed anyone. Lexi ends up being more of a killer than Danielle, but since Chloe and Danielle were technically trying to kill Lexi, I'll give Lexi the self-defense pass. This is the fourth Hulu Into the Dark movie. New Year, New You is terrible. Like, really, really terrible. Hulu is now one for four. If I'm super generous, I guess I could give them two for four. Even though Puka isn't that great, it was at least semi-entertaining, unlike the first movie, The Body, and this most recent movie, New Year, New You. Nothing that happens makes a lot of sense. Lexi tries to get Danielle to confess to being a horrible person, which doesn't work. So then... 
Everyone decides it's time to start murdering. The only person that doesn't decide it's time to start killing everyone is Kayla. Kayla is black and a lesbian, so when she ends up being killed first, we fill two tropes. I mean, I guess you could say that her death doesn't fulfill the tragic lesbian's trope on its own, but don't worry, her girlfriend shows up and is also murdered. I want to talk about the cinematography. In a similar way to the house that Jack built, New Year, New You has camera zooms a la The Office. Unlike in Jack, which uses the camera movement for comedic effect, New Year, New You's use of zoom in doesn't work. At least not as intended. New Year, New You isn't trying to be comedic, but when we get an awkward zoom on a character's reaction that lingers longer than it should, it ends up being funny. For some reason, there are multiple flash-forwards with a heavy green filter. I'm not sure why these flash-forwards were added. It's not like one of the characters is supposed to be psychic. The flash-forwards add nothing to the movie except runtime. New Year, New You suffers from boring story that should have been a short, at best, stretched to be feature-length syndrome. This seems to be a common issue with Hulu's Into the Dark series so far. I'd like to say that this movie ended up being so bad it's good, but nope, this movie sucks. I felt like giving up on it multiple times throughout my viewing. The gore is boring, here are the kills. Kayla falls after being pushed and her head hits a counter. After this happens, she ends up in a perfect sitting position somehow. Her girlfriend is stabbed in the back. Chloe falls down the stairs. Danielle is pushed through a window and lands in a pool where she bleeds out. I mean, a pool filling with blood is kinda neat, but Strangers Pray at Night did that recently and did a way better job. Something that needs to be brought up is Lexi's scar. It is obviously fake. They don't even really explain how she got it, I'm pretty sure, so she doesn't even need to have this poorly applied scar. There's a part in New Year New You where Lexi and Kayla are locked in a steam room. Thing is, we are shown that the control panel is in the room. They could have turned off the steam at any time, which they don't for some reason. Danielle tells a story about banging Elon Musk. His name isn't explicitly said, but it's heavily implied. Huh, Grimes must be pissed. At the end of the movie, we see Lexi on the Instagram slash YouTube show thing, which only has 11,000 views. That's not a lot of views. Even though I have only been complaining about this movie, there is one thing in this that is so hilarious that I don't consider my watch of New Year, New You to be a complete waste of time. After Danielle is tied up, Lexi rubs this weird green cream all over Danielle's face on and around her lips. So what? Why would Lexi making Danielle look all dumb be so great that I wouldn't consider the viewing a complete waste of time? Well, you see, after all of this goop and makeup is applied to Danielle's face, she looks exactly like Old Greg from the Mighty Boosh. After the application, Danielle is a dead ringer for Old Greg. The resemblance is so uncanny that it must have been done on purpose. Kudos for the Old Greg reference, New Year, New You. If you did it on purpose, that is. New Year, New You is boring and terrible. Don't waste your time with the movie. Because I'm a masochist, I am locking myself into finishing at least the entire first year of Into the Dark films.
Number four, The Clove Hitch Killer, 2018, directed by Duncan Skiles. Tyler, a good Christian Boy Scout, finds a bondage picture in his dad's truck. After this, Tyler snoops around his dad's shed and finds an incriminating box that makes Tyler believe his dad is the infamous Clove Hitch Killer. With the help of a girl named Cassie, Tyler gathers more proof. He finds some damning evidence under the house. His dad brings up his suspicions and says Tyler's uncle was the killer and stopped after becoming paralyzed in a car crash. The evidence Tyler found is burned. The dad, now restless since all his trophies were burned, plans a new kill. During the kill, Tyler shows up and stops his dad with Cassie's help. Tyler and Cassie kill Tyler's dad and make it look like an accident instead of letting everyone know he was the clove hitch killer. Tyler's dad, the clove hitch killer, is the killer. This movie has a similar basic premise to Summer of 84. The clove hitch killer is a much better movie. Dylan McDermott is absolutely incredible in this. It's kind of crazy to look at his portrayal as the weird masturbating dad in the first season of American Horror Story compared to this dad. McDermott's dad portrayal in The Clove Hitch Killer is immaculate. He's the most dad that ever dadded. He also brings the perfect level of creepy bondage fan serial killer to the character. I was very impressed by his acting. Everyone else is there, but no one else shines like McDermott does. One thing that impressed me is how far we have come in regards to cloning. A young clone of Chad Michael Murray plays Tyler. If you do some research, you'll be told that Charlie Plummer is the actor that plays Tyler, but I'm no fool. I know a young clone of Chad Michael Murray when I see one. I've seen the Freaky Friday remake more than enough times to pick him out of a lineup. Jamie Lee Curtis is great in that. One thing I really liked in The Clove Hitch Killer was getting to see the dad on the hunt. I also thought it was fun seeing the dad be a creepy sex pervert in his latex girl mask. Yeah, that part comes out of left field for sure. Now one thing that actually bothered me quite a bit was the decision to show Tyler's side of things after he catches his dad red-handed. Well, not technically red-handed since the dad's murder method doesn't involve blood. Fun fact, the phrase red-handed actually has nothing to do with blood. It has some confusing Scottish origin. Anyway, after Tyler gets on a bus to go to leadership camp, we follow Dad as he hunts and attacks a woman. Tyler then randomly pops up right before the lady is murdered to save the day. Right after Tyler makes his entrance, we flip back to his point of view at the bus station. Why? Everything Tyler does is obvious and can be put together by the viewer. We all know he got off the bus early and went to stay with Cassie. Obviously, the duo then spied on Deadly Dad. All the clues are there. Does telling us Tyler was under the bed in one scene add to the movie? Nope. It's not even a tense scene because we know that he doesn't get caught. I would have preferred spending more time showcasing the dad's insanity instead of showing the easily inferred actions of Tyler. There isn't really any gore in this besides a cut on dad's head from a lamp bash, and the cinematography is nothing special. The Clovefitch Killer is a good time. I love the overly Christian community setting and early revealed that dad is the killer. Like I already mentioned, McDermott's performance was also amazing. Check out The Clove Hitch Killer. Fun, well, actually disturbing fact, 
The story appears to be heavily inspired by a real-life serial killer. That killer is Dennis Rader, the BTK Strangler, if you want to look up the real-life counterpart. Number 5, Bird Box, 2018, directed by Suzanne Beer. A pregnant woman named Mallory ends up at a house with others during a strange outbreak. It's revealed that anyone who sees a certain entity are compelled to kill themselves. Mallory falls in love with a guy named Tom. Eventually, it's also revealed that after seeing the entity, some people go crazy, and instead of killing themselves, these fanatics try to force others to see it. One gets into the house and kills a bunch of people. Mallory and Tom survive, as well as Mallory and another girl's newborn babies. Five years later, the couple talk to a guy named Rick on a radio, who tells them about a compound down the river. The fanatics show up and Tom sacrifices himself to save Mallory and the kids. Mallory and the kids make it to the compound, which used to be a school for the blind. Everything is good there. The compulsion to commit suicide after seeing the entity and the fanatics it creates are the killers. I thought Bird Box was going to be a so dumb it's fun movie, but it ended up being an enjoyable, though not the most original, kinda dumb watch. What can I say? I have a weakness for Sandra Bullock. She plays Mallory in this movie, but I'm just going to refer to her by her real name. This guy hated A Quiet Place, but liked Bird Box? What a hypocrite. I mean, Bird Box is kinda like A Quiet Place, but for one thing, Bird Box doesn't get hit nearly as hard with the plot holes. Sure, there are some plot holes, like if you can get infected by seeing the thing on a computer monitor, how come the news coverage didn't infect people? How are the birds still alive in the supermarket after so much time has passed since the initial outbreak? How come the entities can't sneak into the chimney or something? And how was blindfolded Sandra able to save a kid who doesn't know how to swim after the kid fell out of the boat into running water? Um, maybe it does have a ton of plot holes. I don't even think I covered close to all of them there. At least in Bird Box, the pregnant ladies were pregnant before the chaos started. I mean, in Bird Box, making more babies wouldn't even be an issue compared to A Quiet Place. Y'all already know my thoughts on A Quiet Place, so now I'm going to focus on Bird Box. Bird Box is basically a zombie movie. You can't pull the wool over my eyes, Bird Box. I can see this is a zombie movie. Due to this basically being a zombie movie, a lot of time is spent dealing with humans that were forced together interacting. Hell is others. John Malkovich plays the super jerk character. For some reason, a super jerk always ends up being one of the group members. I really don't like his acting in this. We first meet Malkovich's character right after his wife dies, saving Sandra Bullock's character. Malkovich doesn't really react to watching his wife commit suicide. His delivery is off, and his jerk portrayal is completely one note. This might have been fine if another actor was playing the character, but I expected more from Malkovich. No one's acting impressed me. Sandra Bullock does an alright job, but doesn't give a standout performance. The worst actor of the bunch is the old lady. Holy moly does she ham it up as the stereotypical grandma. The human drama aspect of the movie doesn't feel all that fresh. I've seen all the things that happen, part of the group running off with supplies, the jerk character not wanting to help people, the jerk character warning the others not to trust random outsiders, the other characters trusting a random outsider which ends up being their downfall. Bird Box is pretty predictable. 
why don't they quarantine the outsider instead of John Malkovich? I mean, John was threatening everyone with a gun, but he made a lot of sense. The new guy that's revealed to be a murderous fanatic looks exactly like a textbook murderous fanatic. There are a lot of interesting deaths in this movie due to the compulsion to kill yourself aspect. We're told that this random mass suicide is happening in Russia. Sandra then goes to the hospital for a checkup and we see the most Russian looking lady of all time. Her outfit is so loud that I knew her character would come back. She's decked out in a full burnt orange tracksuit. I guess the implication is that she somehow brought the entity with her. I might be looking into something that's not there though. All I'm saying is her looking super Russian seemed purposeful. The only thing missing was a bottle of vodka. Even without that, it's one offensive tracksuit, especially to one's eyes. Russian lady starts bashing her face into glass to kill herself. After we see this, chaos breaks out. The chaotic sequence of Sandra getting to the house is awesome. There's a bunch of different suicides, the gore is overall pretty great, but a lot of it has a weird digital feel to it due to a lack of practical effects. After a car crash, Sandra is supposed to have some cut or skin palms, but the makeup on her hands for the wounds looked terrible. Besides the really bad hand gore, everything is done well enough. One thing I really appreciated in Bird Box is the lack of terrible jump scare sound cues. There's a part where Sandra's sister walks in front of a garbage truck to kill herself. In any other movie, we'd get an overly loud horn or sound cue to let us know that what we are seeing is horrifying because we're stupid. Bird Box just let the imagery speak for itself. Big kudos there. One of my favorite Dumb Dumb Girls songs, Coming Down, is played during the beginning of the movie. It's a good song. I like that birds were used as an alert to the entity's presence. It reminded me of how canaries were used to detect gas leaks in coal mines. Luckily, the birds in this movie didn't have to die to alert people. Wait, were animals affected by the entity? I mean, I guess we were never shown the birds actually seeing the entity since they are literally in a bird box. Even though Bird Box isn't the most original movie and doesn't fully capitalize on the concept of not being able to look at something or you'll die, it is still an enjoyable enough watch. I've seen a lot of people take issue with the film's structure which basically lets you know that everyone but Sandy B and the kids dies which deflates a lot of tension since you're told this in the very beginning of the movie. I agree that Bird Box would be better in chronological order. A lot of people I normally agree with were not fans of this movie, but I stand by my soft recommendation. I'm not exactly sure why I like this movie more than most people. I'm normally a pretty cynical guy. Maybe it's my crush on Sandra Bullock. The fact that I didn't see any of the marketing before my viewing or because I hate A Quiet Place so much that I'll prefer another mediocre similar movie just to spite it. Number 6, The Bar, 2017, directed by Alex de la Iglesia. A group of people end up stuck inside a bar after two patrons are shot exiting said bar. Inside, a man that's revealed to be military dies due to a strange disease. The people realize they are being quarantined and the disease is being covered up by the government. People that touch the man's body are forced into the basement. The Spanish equivalent of the CDC enters the bar, kills three people that weren't in the basement, and scorches everything with flamethrowers. 
The five people in the basement figure out the military guy had four vaccines left on him. They find them. The poor guy in the group takes one and ends up with a gun. The other three vaccines fall through a drain into the sewer. A young woman named Elena is able to squeeze through the drain. The drain opening is enlarged. Everyone goes down. A guy nicknamed Beard Boy attacks the poor guy. The poor guy disappears. An older woman ends up killing herself. The poor guy then pops back up and kills another dude in the group. Beard Boy and Elena run and climb up to a manhole cover. Beard Boy is pulled down by poor guy, which kills them both. Elena makes it out after injecting herself with a vaccine. The government and poor guy are the killers. Well, that overview was long and boring, just like the movie, the bar was hard to sit through. It was supposed to be a black comedy horror thriller, but nothing that happened made me laugh or excited me. I didn't realize this was another Alex de Iglesia movie until I finished watching it. I had my suspicions due to the awful aesthetic. It's hard to explain, but all the actors in this movie look extra grimy for some reason. It's like the footage is over sharpened or something. It's the director's aesthetic. I've come to the conclusion that I don't like Iglesias' films. I can't remember much about my watch-throughs of The Last Circus and The Day of the Beast. Witching and Bitching was covered on a past episode and was boring. All of his movies have pacing issues. I'll definitely make sure to avoid him in the future. Anyway, back to the bar. Uh, for the most part, the little bits of gores we get don't look great. The makeup for the military guy's gross corpse was well done. There are also some burnt hands that look decent. It's pretty unbelievable how fast everyone turns on each other and makes up crazy conspiracy theories about a possible terrorist being among them. I guess it moves the plot forward somewhat, but the whole one of us is a bomber conclusion that everyone accepts is incredibly stupid. A lot of the action in this movie is terribly shot. For example, the poor guy gets stuck in the drain, so he has to be yanked out. This yank and the old lady falling down some stairs is shown in a sped up and choppy way. I could see the drain pull being done in a fun, cartoonish way, but what we get is poor guy pulled slowly out of the drain, played and fast forward. Why wouldn't you just get a stunt person to do a normal pratfall for the older woman is beyond me. Welp, that's really all I got for this boring movie. The bar is an hour and 42 minute runtime where nothing entertaining happens. I only watched it because I could easily cast it to my TV while laying in bed. I should have just watched something else in my living room instead of wasting my time on this. What do you call a comedy that's not funny? Is boring a genre? Maybe all the jokes were lost in translation or Spain just finds different things funny. I don't think I've ever seen a comedy from Spain that I really enjoyed. To be fair, all the Spanish comedies I've seen have been from Iglesia. I should probably give some other Spanish directors a shot. I have enjoyed the horror stuff that I've seen from Paco Plaza and Jaime Balaguerro. I didn't care about anything that was happening in the bar and wasn't affected by any character deaths. Do not waste your time with the bar. If for some reason you really want to check out one of Iglesias' films, try The Last Circus. Number seven, Black Mirror Cucumber Patch, uh, Cabbage Lash, Cumberbatch, Bandage Snack, or er, Bandersnatch, 2018, directed by David Slade, 
As you can tell by the hilarious and original intro to this segment, this is going to be a loosey-goosey pouring of my thoughts on the new choose-your-own-adventure Black Mirror spectacle, Bandersnatch. Let me start off by saying, really Netflix, no Chromecast or Windows app compatibility? I read up on the reasoning, but still. I watched Bandersnatch the night I finished the last episode for Blank is the Killer. If I hadn't written down a reminder to myself to go over the movie for the seventh topic, I would have completely forgotten about it. As a kid, I hated choose-your-own-adventure books. Even back then, I found them to be poorly written garbage versions of better books. Looking at you, choose-your-own-adventure goosebumps. Man, those were inferior to the well-thought-out books. What was I talking about? Oh yeah, the painfully forgettable Bandersnatch. I watched a decent amount of the routes, got our main character killed, made him kill his dad, had him chop up his dad's body to get rid of it. I didn't tell him to then spread the blood everywhere and keep pieces lying around. Sloppy stuff, Mr. Main Character. I've seen most negativity towards Bandersnatch met with well, it was a test for the format. It's paving the way for the future applications of choose-your-own-adventure media. To which I say, no. No, it's not. If I want to watch something where I have to make decisions regarding what will happen, I'll just play a video game. When I sit down to watch a show or movie, I want a good, cohesive story. I don't want to watch some watered-down garbage where, depending on the choices I make, I can watch more watered down garbage. Now, if there was ever a project where I don't basically get a game over for a choice and any combination of choices led to a riveting feature length film, then and only then would I be impressed. Until then, choose your own adventure will continue to be a complete gimmick. Here's an exercise. Let's go back to Goosebumps. Were you a fan? Yeah, I mean, who wasn't? Oh, a hardcore fan? Name one Goosebumps choose-your-own-adventure book. You're probably sitting here thinking about all the great books like Horrorland, Say Cheese and Die, and Night of the Living Dummy. Can you name or even remember the overall plot for one of the choose-your-own-adventure books? I can't. Choose-your-own-adventure is a bad form of media when it isn't in a video game. Bandersnatch didn't pave the way for anything. I did think most of the acting in it was great. I liked seeing Alice Lowe as the therapist. I really liked her in Prevenge, which is a great movie. Bandersnatch's cinematography was solid at points, and some of the gags, like telling the main character that Netflix viewers are controlling him and prompting him to fight the therapist, were fun. But I would have preferred a strong, cohesive Black Mirror episode over this gimmick. While I'm talking about Black Mirror, Black Mirror. Stop trying to connect all your episodes with cutesy references. Go back to being individual episodes covering interesting technological fears, please. Even though I just complained pretty much nonstop about Bandersnatch, you might as well check it out if you haven't already. It's forgettable, but will entertain you for an hour. That'll do it for episode 36. As always, a big thanks to Sticker Fridge for hosting the podcast on their website, which allows it to lovingly attack all of your ear holes. That is something a human would say. If you like this episode of Blank is the Killer, leave a rating on iTunes. Seeing a rating or review reinvigorates my sense of purpose. 
I'll try to leave the house and go see the new PG-13 Saw movie, I mean Escape Room, for the next episode, which will be out on January 27th. Until then, make sure to not get murdered by your friends. If a friend you haven't seen in years pops up and starts being extra friendly, they're probably planning on killing you with murder to death.